Hello and welcome to another mini-sode. Today we are talking about COVID-19 because we continue to see the challenges the pandemic is posing to rural hospitals as cases increase and some are facing the worst surge their communities have experienced to date. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hotshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. JJ, COVID is heavy on our minds right now um, and was kind of a good opportunity for us to do a mini-sode and just talk a little bit about what our hospital is seeing, what we're hearing and seeing from other rural hospitals around our state and around the country. Um, You know, significant and concerning increase in cases in our community as well as others, even just in the last few days for us in particular. Um, So why don't you just share a little bit about what we've been facing here over the last, you know, week or so? You know, that's right, Rachel, and we're not too different than most rural hospitals right now who are faced with labor shortages, uh, faced with the reality of sicker patients than we have ever seen. Uh, Some of the pandemic that we have faced most recently uh, is new to us because Mm -hmm. if you recall early on, we were not seeing the spikes in Hillsdale County that many of our counterparts across the country had witnessed. I mean, we had heard early on uh, last April, May, June, July, Mm -hmm. August, you know, of hospitals that were on diversion and closing, you know, their doors to normal traffic and those type of things. We didn't experience that right away. Uh, In fact, uh, we had some ebbs and flows, but most recently, We, too, now have suffered uh, an onslaught of individuals uh, who are impacted by COVID-19 and are using our services, both on the inpatient side, emergency department as well, uh, and then as you look at our skilled nursing facility. And we're really no different than most of those rural hospitals who struggle with that shortage of labor with now a sicker patient coming in. How do you take care of them? How do you take care of them when your staff themselves are sick? And these are the realities that we face in rural health because we don't have a pool of staff. Right. You know, I have counterparts across the country, uh, and they have the luxury of having what they call labor pools. Mm-hmm. And and what they do is whenever there is a shortage in one particular uh, unit or division within their hospital, their their labor pool is called in and will fill in. That doesn't happen here. Right. You know, our labor pool is nurse managers. Uh, coming over to the hospital, Mm -hmm. stopping their normal day-to-day business affairs uh, and serving as nurses, putting their scrubs on and coming over to make sure that our patients are well cared for. And so uh, that is our backup plan. And and many times we have nurses and aides who are staying over, floating, we call it. Uh, We flex, float, and rotate at a small rural hospital. What that means is uh, we have individuals that are registered nurses and nurses' aides who are what we call cross-trained. And so they will go from, if the OR is not busy, they'll go from the OR to the emergency department, from the emergency department upstairs, wherever they're needed. And before uh, they check out for the day, uh, they're checking in with the supervisor, asking, where do you need me? And that's what happens. But over time, Rachel, you know, a year later, you know, as we're continuing to do this, it's very taxing on our staff. It's very, very difficult for them uh, as they too face this in their personal lives and in their homes. And uh, it's a challenge for them to take care of patients. Generally speaking, nurses work 12-hour shifts. Uh, Sometimes they're volunteer for eight or 10 more hours over on top of that, which is very difficult. Mm -hmm. So we try to keep them only for 16 hours. So they're working 16 hours. Uh, They're going home. They're facing all of those challenges. And they're coming right back for another 12 or 16-hour shift. And 
over time, you know, in re- repeatedly doing this, it wears on staff. And without that labor pool and only having the ancillary staff uh, helping and assisting, maybe take um, individuals and deliver food. You know, that's what we can do. We can't provide clinical services. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we say in rural health that all hands are on deck, all hands are on deck. Right. And you and I, you know, I've been over there before. I've driven patients home. Uh, most recently, I'm going over there asking, do you need help passing out meal trays? Do you right. need assistance in this area? And it's very, very taxing uh, for our staff. So so what we're seeing here at Hillsdale, you know, does look uh, much what the country faced uh, months ago. And uh, the rural hospitals now are just getting uh, saturated with, uh, with the individuals that are coming in and presenting. Uh, Hillsdale, uh, we've struggled because we have a high number of COVID positive patients right now. Uh, and that's significantly concerning to us uh, in a time in which we also have nurse labor shortages. And Rachel, think beyond just nursing. Right. You know, we've got lab techs, you know, we have cardiopulmonary, uh, mm-hmm. dietary, all environmental services. environmental services, cleaning, terminal cleaning the rooms. Mm-hmm. These are all critical positions and all necessary in order to move the room, uh, rotate that room in and out, get the patient in and out. Uh, discharge planning. You know, mm-hmm. yesterday, uh, just this week, we had our discharge planners in one day discharging 14 patients, wow. a majority of those COVID patients who had been in, vaccinated, not very many. Unvaccinated is what we're seeing. And Mm -hmm. that weighs heavy on our nurses and our caregivers as well. Right. uh, Because it's almost as if, you know, they feel helpless Mm -hmm. and the person who's getting the care didn't take the initiative to help themselves. And I know it's hard to hear. Right. And and I know that that's going to strike a chord with many people saying it's my right. It is absolutely your right. Uh, not to be vaccinated. And we're not here pushing for federal mandates. We're not here mandating it. What we're saying is think about your actions and think about those consequences. Because I want to tell you, your inaction to get the vaccine, maybe we have two different classifications that we've been working with. One is someone who just hasn't gotten it yet. You know, mm-hmm. they're thinking about it, but they just haven't found the time. Get vaccinated. And then the second population is the individuals who are absolutely opposed to it. And many times, Rachel, we're finding this is out of political reasons. Right. And that's sad. It is. Because this should be this should not be political. It should mm-hmm. be the furthest thing from politics. And so, you know, a, as you know, uh, you know, that that challenge is even more real to us. So um, like you, Rachel, we're we're not the only ones. Um, but like you said, Rachel, we're not the only ones. Uh, I know we've been keeping an eye on this, but w- what are you hearing from your associations and other rural hospitals across the country? Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, I have a set of Google alerts that I may have mentioned on the podcast before. Um, I have one for Hillsdale plus Michigan plus hospital. I have one for, quote, Hillsdale Hospital. And I also have one for rural health care or rural hospitals. And lately, all I'm seeing on my Google alerts are headlines about rural hospitals that are facing staffing shortages and are experiencing surges, so to speak, um, of more and more patients and really are seeing the worst uh, number, the highest numbers that they've seen since the pandemic started. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because at the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't really know what we were dealing with, Mm -hmm. you know, as Mm -hmm. um, our our, uh, governments didn't know, healthcare didn't know, nobody knew. Um, And so there were a lot of measures that were taken that were precautionary. And since that time, 
you know, things are worse now in a lot of places, um, but not all of those measures or that same kind of attitude of caution um, is there because, you know, we've just gotten tired of all oh, yeah. of those things. And, and you know, of course, we know more now, too, about how effective is this versus that. Um, but things like social distancing, wearing masks, washing hands. Works. I mean, we knew that worked well before COVID. Decades ago. Because of things like flu and all of that. Um, but, you know, the, the sense of urgency and concern in the general public, I don't know if it's there quite like it was in the beginning. Right. You, you know. know so, Rachel, I don't know about you. I have never seen such a high-level resistance. Right. You know, I've been in healthcare for 11 years. You've got a plethora of background in healthcare and public relations. Have you seen it this bad? No. And I think, you know, unfortunately, like you said, things are very politicized. And um, there is a lot of social media conversation that contributes to some of this. And, um, you know, the problem is a lot of these social media sites, whether it's YouTube or Facebook or whatever, they use algorithms to um, entice you with more posts or videos or mm. content of any kind to keep you on the platform longer, right? Because mm -hmm. the more time users well, sure. spend on the platform, um, you know, the, the more ratings. they can charge for advertising oh, yeah. and all of that. What happens, though, is that that algorithm is often feeding you information that is similar to things that you have already looked at. Um, but sometimes it becomes more and more extreme or along those same lines. Or maybe there are certain characteristics that you have as you're looking at content that might line up with um, people who think a certain way politically or who feel a certain way about vaccines or whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you start seeing that information. And the problem is a lot of times the more information we take in from a certain perspective, the more likely we are to believe that that's the right perspective because that's the bulk of the information we have. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that it can really even just come down to a numbers game of everything you're looking at, what mm -hmm. percentage comes from this perspective and what percentage comes from this perspective. Mm -hmm. That's probably going to tell you where you kind of lie in yeah. your own feelings and opinions. So it's really important for people to diversify their, um, you know, their media diet, if you will, mm -hmm. and to look at a lot of different sources, but also to to really question those who are advocating against the COVID-19 vaccine question why they're doing that. You know, what is their platform? How do they make money on their platform? It's a great, it's a great um, analogy. You know, it's, it's really important to think about that because you might hear, oh, well, so-and-so podcast host said this or, yeah. um, you know, this. There, there's a guy who uh, used to work for Pfizer. He used to be a VP of their allergy and respiratory illness research uh, based out of the UK. Now, Rachel, is it 10 true years ago. that he was the chief guru at Pfizer? It is not true. Okay. Because that's circulating he, right, the internet. Right. He was a VP of a division, not even a VP okay. of the company as a whole. Right. Um, and I don't know, you know, division department, whatever they call it, but he was, you know, a vice president of a section of everything that Pfizer does. He's not an immunologist. Mm -hmm. um, and at the beginning of the pandemic, he was very positive about COVID-19 vaccines. Um, he was very, uh, you know, concerned about COVID. His Twitter account has shown that. But now he's become kind of a hero of the anti-COVID vaccine movement and, and was one of the individuals that perpetuated the rumor about um, fertility being affected by the COVID-19 mm. vaccines. It's dangerous. And the more you look into 
an individual like this. The problem is, and we talked about this on our Facebook Live several weeks ago, the easiest way to deceive people <laughs> is to add lies to the truth. Yeah. And when someone is a scientist, mm -hmm. is using scientific language, it gives them credibility yeah, it's dangerous. just by that. It's and dangerous. it is. It's dangerous because people start to believe what those folks are saying. And so to bring all of this back to the challenges we're facing in rural communities, in rural communities, we are seeing lower vaccination rates for whatever yeah, reason. Um, and so our rural hospitals that are already less equipped mm -hmm. to handle a high volume of seriously sick mm -hmm. patients are also more likely to see it because their community numbers. is less protected. Absolutely. Right. You know, so Rachel, one of the things that I noted, you know, is the staunch positions uh, in the immovable positions on both sides. Mm -hmm. Now, we've shared that before on our program, but, you know, uh, to one side is the just do it because it's the right thing to do and you better do it because it's safe and effective. It's safe don't and effective. ask questions. And don't ask us why. <laughs> right. Really? That's not conversation. No. That's actually very offensive to me to tell someone to do it because I th I think it's good for you or because, no, this is just what you need to do to be a good person. It's dismissive really? of anyone's it's dismissive. concerns or and questions. It's, it's very it's, – it's just – it's inappropriate. And mm -hmm. no one will ever be convinced ever by that type of trite attitude right. of just do it. It's your civic duty. Wrong answer. I think what people are looking for today, they're looking for answers. Right. Does it truly cause X? Will it create a stroke, you know, in right. like symptoms? Will it cause infertility? And we have to be able from an epidemiologist standpoint, scientifically talking, not just speculation, but talk about, you know, the medical provisions of what the vaccine means for us. And so, so you have that side. Right. Then you have the other side. It's like government's not going to tell me what to do. Well, OK, let's dissect that. So before the government has to tell you what to do. Don't you want to make a voluntary choice to do what's right? I mean, right. we ask ourselves that question. And even though it might be good for me, the government's not going to tell me to do it. I understand that fully. But remove the government. Mm -hmm. Remove that function out of it. Remove right. the dismissal triteness of you better do it just because. And look at, as you say, there's truth in the middle here. Right. Where Where is the evidence? Where's the science? What have we been saying for decades? Vaccinations work. Mm -hmm. Without a vaccination, they don't work, Rachel. Right. And I want to read something very powerful to you, okay, and to our listeners today. Benjamin Franklin in his autobiography stated, In 1736, I lost one of my sons, a fine boy of four years of age, by the smallpox taken in the common way. I long regretted bitterly and still regret that I have not given it to him by inoculation. This I mention for the sake of parents who admit that operation on the supposition that they should never forgive themselves if a child died under it. My example showing that the regret may be the same either way and that, therefore, the safer should be chosen. Hmm. Benjamin Franklin himself, a great statesman, you know, framer of the, of the Constitution, mm -hmm. individual freedom, understood what liberty meant, uh, who we often quote, has said he would rather choose to have his child inoculated with a vaccine. Right. And I want our listeners to understand that when we start talking about vaccinations and inoculations, this 
just didn't start four years ago. Right. This didn't happen because of COVID. Right. This didn't happen because of Donald Trump. It mm-hmm. didn't happen because of any Who is political... vaccinated, by the way? Who himself? All living U.S. presidents and their spouses are vaccinated. And their so, families. Yeah. And enjoy... that's something we've shared with our community as a reminder of, Absolutely. you know, if you're thinking of this politically, remember that fact. That's important to understand and to recognize because there are individuals who are truly trying to manipulate certain groups of people um, for their own gain. And that's how we get here. And it's the attitude of, you know, it's the the Fauci ouchie. It is. (laughs) I've heard people say, but it was created under Trump's administration and it has been rolled out more widely under Biden's administration. Absolutely. So both parties have contributed to the vaccine being put into place. And look at it, not partisan. You, You have to look at it in the relationship of protecting lives. Yes. And, you know, one of the things that that we can learn from Benjamin Franklin is don't make the mistakes of our forefather uh, who said it is better to do this, because I'm going to tell you, as a parent, the greatest regret you're going to have is not considering this. Right. Not talking to your OBGYN when you're pregnant, not talking to your pediatrician when you have children, not talking Mm -hmm. to your primary physician for yourself and asking those questions, should I? And any uh, good provider is going to talk to you about the importance of this and if you should have it. And in most cases, it's going to lead to you receiving the vaccination. And so we feel that that's responsibility of the individual caring for their children. Right. Uh, and to consider what would happen if my child, you know, we've experienced here most recently this week of a uh, 18-year-old individual uh, who was pregnant, uh, who we had to life flight out of our hospital, Rachel, mm. very serious condition. Yeah. Uh, and that was on Tuesday. And we have other stories and scenarios of 63-year-old, 60 years, 49-year-old healthy female who passed away a few weeks ago yeah. at our hospital. Mm-hmm. Healthy, never, ever uh, involved in a hospital before and dies of COVID. And for our staff to watch this, it is so heavy on their hearts. Right. Now, in one Not res- to mention all, like we talked about the physical and mental exhaustion, the Absolutely. emotional exhaustion Absolutely. is huge with this. Yeah. So if you don't trust Trump and you don't trust Fauci, you don't trust Biden, trust Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, there you, you know, go. I mean, we studied him in school and mm-hmm. we quote him. Uh, he understood the value of good parenting and the value of humanity of taking care of each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that is why I wanted to share that quote today. Now, the other area that I want to talk to you about, uh, and you've you've spoken about this in the past, um, is individuals who are just saying, spreading the information about, you know, infertility. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've had plenty of conversations with your OBGYN, and I right. know you can't speak as a healthcare professional, but, you know, how do we debunk that? Because I'm not sure if that's all accurate. In fact, we know it's not. The second issue is, you know, as we look at the the the, the point I want you to talk about the most is this idea that it was developed way too fast, JJ. Right. What, what do you say to those things? Right. Well, a couple things. One, I got vaccinated when I was pregnant um, because I was more concerned about being that 18-year-old being life flighted out, getting COVID while pregnant. The risk of that was significantly higher than any potential risk of getting vaccinated, in my opinion. Um, and based on the you know conversations I had with my OB-GYN and, and her feelings about it and her understanding of me and my health, 
Um, and I would, you know, if I could go back now, I would do it again. I'm grateful for that. That also means it's likely that because I'm nursing my son that he is getting antibodies through mm-hmm. breast milk. He's not producing his own necessarily just because he was in utero when I was vaccinated. Um, but he can be getting that as well from from breast milk like other antibodies are delivered to babies that way. Sure. Um, so for me, that's important because that's the best I can do and could do at the time to protect my son because he can't get vaccinated yeah. for COVID at this yeah. point. Yeah. Um, But, you know, the concern about it hasn't been tested enough or it was developed too fast, um, that feels very real to people when you think about it because it's like, okay, COVID has only been on the scene for a couple years now, right? So it makes sense in your head to think, well, yeah, if COVID barely started, how in the world were they able to develop that that fast? This stuff is supposed to take forever. Clinical trials and studies with 10,000 people. Right, exactly. Well, so when you think about it, the typical clinical trials have tens of thousands of people in them. You know, maybe it's 30,000, maybe it's 50,000, and maybe that occurs over, you know, five years sometimes times for a clinical trial to be started and completed to have those numbers in the 50,000s or wherever they are. This vaccine has been given to millions of people around the world now. So we have, you know, the equivalent of probably, I haven't done the math, so don't anybody quote me on this. But but when you think about it, we've probably have the equivalent of decades of clinical trials in terms of the number of people who have received the COVID vaccine. I would agree. Um, And I also think that there's just an element of people who that was your concern in the beginning. You know, time has passed, but your your life keeps you busy and you may just not have revisited that in your head or thought about it again um, since you initially, you know, had made a decision not to yet get vaccinated. So um, one of the things we are doing is talking to our staff who are not yet vaccinated and, and making sure they have all the information they need. They have all they, they can ask all the questions that they have. We can talk through things um, with them. And when I say we, I mean our experts at the hospital, right. not people right. like me not, who, you know, I don't have a clinical leg to stand on, you know. Um, But that's really important. And we really, as we look at this, it's difficult to be a small rural hospital to see the strain that's on your staff, to see the patients who are coming in who are very ill, the patients who are being put on ventilators, the patients who are passing away, and knowing that there's a vaccine that could have prevented the vast majority of those scenarios from actually occurring. It's it's just um, it's frustrating, not necessarily frustrated with people as if there are not real reasons that people are not getting vaccinated. But the question is, where's the validity in those things? Not the validity of how they feel, but the validity of the quote unquote facts or information that has caused them to feel that way about the vaccine. So, you know, on a human level, we don't want anyone who has not been vaccinated to feel alienated. And we've really tried to um, be very mindful of that and all of the communication we've done with our community here in Hillsdale. And for those of you who don't know, we do a Facebook live show every single week, which we started with COVID. And that's our way to come to our local community and say, this is what's happening here in Hillsdale at Hillsdale Hospital. 
hospital um, and really be that voice and um, the the source to go to to kind of parse through all of the different headlines and and the varying, uh, you know, all the rhetoric on both sides. And, you know, we get criticism from people <laughs> on both sides, both sides of all of these issues, whether it's masking, vaccines, COVID in general. Um, and I think that for us is actually kind of a litmus test that says we're we're on the right track and we're not, you know, perpetuating one particular line of thinking or another. Um, and we're doing a good job with our critical thinking and making sure we're balancing everything that we're sharing. Um, but it's really important to recognize that you can't homogenize everyone who mm-hmm. has not yet been vaccinated. No, no. And so in our communities, we have to think about how do we approach this issue with caring and compassion, mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that it is difficult because it's easy to get frustrated knowing there's a solution out there. It's just not being adopted by enough people. Absolutely. There's two pathways. The first pathway is herd immunity. Mm-hmm. When, if you get to herd immunity, let me let me tell our listeners, there's going to be deaths, lots lot. of deaths mm-hmm. to get to herd immunity. That means, that means it is so rampant. And who would that impact the most? Those seniors, mm-hmm. the comorbid conditioned uh, individuals, uh, people who are cancer patients, mm-hmm. the sick, the sickest among us, whose immune systems cannot support that. So herd immunity can and does happen at times. And right. I'm going to tell you that, you know, if that's the solution, we have to be prepared for the results, which is right. lots of deaths. Right. Or the second pathway, which prevents death in many cases, and that's vaccination. Mm-hmm. That which Benjamin Franklin talked about so long ago, vaccinations. Right. And it's not a live virus. We've already been down that road of talking right. about what it all means. And we've just talked about the research that was done. Yeah, we move through research in a matter of time, but never in the history of America have we had so many scientists, researchers, epidemiologists. Funding. Funding the resources from the federal government to pay for it. We never had that. It was a super competitive marketplace with competition guarded. We had companies working together, industries mm-hmm. working together, lines shutting down in organizations, uh, Johnson & Johnson, whatever it is, all their product development, uh, all those lines shut down to focus on this effort. So naturally, we're going to move through it quicker than we would during the discovery of any other vaccine Mm -hmm. and something in which which could move quickly because of the resources that were thrown at both human and and financial. Then we look at, okay, the pathway that's open today, vaccination. Well, let's first debunk, Rachel, the statement that, well, if I get vaccinated, I hear about all these people who are vaccinated and who are getting COVID. What do you say to that? The the number of breakthrough cases is low, but the more important thing is not even just are people who've been vaccinated still potentially getting COVID. Yes, we have known from the beginning that there's still a possibility that you will get COVID if you're vaccinated. The question is, how likely are you to end up hospitalized? How likely are you to end up on mechanical ventilation? And how likely are you to die due to COVID? How severe is it going to be for you? And so, you know, that while I understand the question, 
Um, that's not really the goal of the vaccine. The goal of the vaccine is not to say no one will ever get COVID no, again. not at all. The goal of the vaccine is to say fewer people will be sick enough to need absolutely. hospitalization and we're seeing that to here. pass away. And a lot of people absolutely will not get COVID. The absolutely. vast majority absolutely will not get COVID. But those who do are not as likely to end up in the hospital, to end up passing away. Um, and, you know, can you talk a little bit about what we've seen here with that? Because we have seen a couple people who were fully vaccinated, who've been hospitalized just here in the last week, maybe three or four. But there's a little more to it than that, right? There is. And we had our first few breakthrough cases, uh, if you would call it that, um, last week. Mm -hmm. And first, to your point, uh, the efficacy rate, when we were looking at this, we were happy to think about 60 percent right. uh, that th- that would be effective if vaccinated. Um, it's proven to be much higher. In fact, 98 percent. And and that's much greater and better than even the flu vaccination, Rachel. Mm-hmm. So we know that the efficacy of it is high. Um, and we know that the patients were watching every day. Uh, the patients who were vaccinated are not as sick and they're being released in a day or two versus patients who are here for weeks. Mind you, a patient so far who has been here for 26 days, Mm. very, very ill. And we're seeing this across the country. So, you know, when we talk about Hillsdale specifically, we want to focus about rural health. This is what we're dealing with. Uh, Very high population of unvaccinated individuals, half of them, uh, well over half in our Mm -hmm. community, uh, nearly 58% unvaccinated. That presents a challenge Mm -hmm. because these patients come in, they're sick. They're really sick. Now, someone often says to me throughout the week, JJ, what's the real number? You, you, you've got a lot more vaccinated, don't you? And I would be very candid and say, absolutely not. We have right. more unvaccinated than we do vaccinated. In fact, it was just last week that we had a few of these cases that were what we call breakthrough cases where individuals mm-hmm. came to the hospital, presented, were ill, um, but were already vaccinated by one of the, the companies, uh, right. Johnson Johnson, uh, Moderna. And they, however were not as sick as those other patients right. who were presenting. Now, let's look at the numbers. Today, as an example, you know, that number will look different mm-hmm. than it did yesterday. Right. It's it's the ebbs and flows, the severity and the acuity of what we call the acuity, the seriousness of the patient and their mm-hmm. condition. Um, just the other day, uh, we had on Tuesday, we had a number of patients in. At one point, we had 17. Yeah. And uh, those patients, uh, six of them were critical. And were in, JJ, just for a point of reference, how many beds do we have on our med surge unit? Well, I'm going to tell you, when we start getting to 23 and 24, we call code high census. Right. So 17, um, we're going to, and that, yeah. and that is not patients. That's just COVID patients, yeah, that's right? COVID the patients. 17. That's COVID. And then our CCU, yeah. six, which six. is all of our, actually, it's all four of our CCU beds as well as our two step down beds that can be converted to CCU. Critical care means these patients are on vents. These patients are in very serious condition, and this is where we've seen over the last several weeks deaths. Right. Um, and that's hard for, for nurses who are working 16-hour shifts yes. uh, to face death and then to go home to their loved ones. And so, you know, when we say vaccination, it's not just because I'm going to put up a wall and say, I am not going to be vaccinated because of uh, my religious beliefs or because of my political beliefs. All right. And that's well within your right to do that. Mm-hmm. No one's contesting that. Right. As you know. I'm a very religious person, uh, faith-based, and I also understand my responsibility that God has given me to make sure that my family, who I care for, 
is safe. Mm-hmm. And that's my responsibility. And and I know that my responsibility has to go beyond sometimes what I'm comfortable with. And right. I debated, as you well know, early on when we started, I had the same hesitations yep. and the same questions that were quickly answered through science and talking to the right people, not searching mm-hmm. the Internet for some half-cocked, whacked out person who's not even associated or affiliated with any credible organization who's going to just spout off untruths when we have history that has told us how well vaccinations work. We have to follow that science. Mm -hmm. And we don't do it just because we say you have to study it, understand it, but don't be a spreader of that information. So at the hospital here, when we're overrun, quote unquote, it impacts every operation. Right. We're doing chest x-rays all the time, right? We're drawing blood more often than we are to run labs and to check uh, all of their vitals. Uh, we have staff coming in around the clock. And then think about this, Rachel, which we often don't in healthcare. They have to go in in hazmat suits. Right. Right. They're wearing full PPE. It takes a lot longer to do a, an hourly round with a patient Absolutely. if they're a COVID patient. And consider this. It's not just for nurses. Our aides have to gown up. Mm-hmm. Environmental services, when they clean the room, have to gown up. It's a tremendous strain already on a strained uh, workforce. Correct. And so, you know, what we're seeing has some significant domino effects uh, to the wellness, the mental wellness, the physical wellness of our staff who are constantly engaged in this fight. Mm-hmm. And then to walk out. And to read articles and to see people saying that this isn't true, that we're, you know, that there's hype and hyperbole in the numbers, you're hearing directly from us, ladies and gentlemen, today. Hillsdale Hospital is telling you that this pandemic is serious. It's in our communities. We're watching people die every, every week. We have seen someone die in in the past few weeks. That is heavy. Now, Will it look different next week? It could, Rachel. Right. And it looked different a month and a half ago. Correct. For, for 30 days, we had zero mm-hmm. patients. But we know that the only way to safeguard this community is to vaccinate. Right. That is our option. Now, we can we can deny it exists and it's going to impact our families. Right. I've been at the bedside of many families and prayed with those families. True stories of individuals who have been very, very ill with COVID mm-hmm. and one who passed. Yeah. And often what I hear from families is, I wish, I wish the vaccine, I wish we would have done vaccination. I wish you cannot wish someone back to life. Yeah. When they're gone, it's done. And if what stood in the way of death and life was a vaccine, and what was available for them to help bridge that gap so they don't die, I have a hard time comprehending that science and basing it off of just individual this or individual that or no one's going to tell me when there's something that can save lives. I struggle with that. Right. And, and that's where I think us, many, many in healthcare, struggle the most is at that position at that point. Now, we were hopeless back in March, right? Uh, you know, when this first started in 2020, right? Mm-hmm. We, we were kind of hopeless. Right. Um, and we didn't know what we didn't know at that point. We were just coming into this pandemic. We had not even considered a vaccine, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, within a short period of time, through a lot of research, scientists, epidemiologists, uh, teams and teams of people around the clock working, we find a solution to a global pandemic right where people in other countries 
you know, are begging for vaccinations. Right. And as much as we know that freedom uh, is 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 ours, we we believe in freedom. Um, but with that freedom comes responsibility. Right. And I have the freedom of speech, Rachel. But I can't run into a movie theater and scream fire. Right. And, and no, when when my choices, the words I use, the things I say, start having consequences, like someone else injured or life running, or death then that is, I'm not using my freedoms responsibly. And it's not a lecture. It's the reality. We can stop a pandemic if we get vaccinated. Right. And I, for one, feel the importance of doing it, having researched it, having lived it every day, but also going home to an 83-year-old mother whose immune system is low, Mm -hmm. COPD, very Mm -hmm. ill. Uh, We admit her for pneumonia at least once a year, sometimes twice, Mm -hmm. Uh, and know that in my world of walking around the hospital, I'm definitely bringing some stuff home. Uh, And and I feel an obligation to make sure that I can somehow stop the spread of that in my own family. So we'd encourage our listeners, you know, rural health care has faced paramount challenges for Mm -hmm. decades. We're we're probably preaching to the choir, but— We are. But— we know that that folks in rural health care are facing the same issues and the same kind of things that we are. So vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. It it is the only way out of this at this point. There is right. there is not it's not gonna run its natural course in herd immunity without significant death. And you still have a population that are going to shield and they're gonna be held up and you're never gonna reach full uh, herd immunity. So we we have to figure out a way. Uh, to responsibly get this vaccine. And if you're not, then think about other responsible things. Right. Don't go out when you're sick. Right. right? So we say those type of things. Educating our community in those areas, I think, is just as important. All right. You don't want to get mm-hmm. vaccinated. It's your choice, your freedom. Mm-hmm. You don't want to do that. But think about the consequences of when you walk in to that restaurant and you're not feeling well. Stay home. Right. Simple, simple techniques like that can save people's lives. Mm-hmm. You have an 80 year old woman out eating dinner with her husband. You walk into the restaurant sick, you're coughing, it's droplet, boom. Someone contracts COVID and they potentially die. Irresponsible. Right. 100%. Right. Stay home if you're sick. Stay home from work if you're sick. Your employers mm-hmm. today will understand that and want you to stay home. Right. You know, get tested if you don't think you're feeling well, because I'm telling you what we're seeing in the Delta variant, it's more serious mm-hmm. and we're seeing more complications as a result of it. Mm-hmm. And so, Rachel, I couldn't encourage our, our community enough uh, into the communities throughout America that are listening to this in rural, rural communities that we owe it, you know, to our families. We owe it to the, the health of our communities uh, to either get vaccinated, and if we're absolutely dead set about getting vaccinated, then we must take precautions in order to move beyond. Thank you for joining us for today's mini-sode. Next week, we'll be speaking with a pair of rural hospital leaders who created a virtual hospital to care for their community amid the COVID-19 pandemic, so be sure to tune in. And if you have a topic or issue you want us to cover on a future mini-sode, shoot us an email at marketing at hillsdalehospital.com. You can also find Hillsdale Hospital on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. That's right. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. You can also find us now on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. 
Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes like this and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.